Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <coughs> uh, I want to invite you to turn back to, yes, you guessed it, Proverbs chapter 27. As you know, we have been for the last 20 or 30 years coming through the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, the book of Proverbs, and we've said this many, many times, is, it represents the mind of God. And uh, if you want to really know how God thinks, you, you go to the book of Proverbs. If you want to know how the world thinks, then you go to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to know how Christ thinks toward the church, then you go to the book of Song of Solomon. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just a great uh, a book, and we've had a great time with it. And last week, you know, uh, we ended a couple of weeks ago into chapter 27. And last week, we looked at two great verses and uh, several great principles on our attitude toward uh, the preaching uh, of the Word of God. We were in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 and 7. And verse uh, 6 said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And we, we talked about that, how that, uh, you know, uh, the best friend you'll ever have in life is someone who loves you enough that will tell you the truth. And we talked about how that, you know, we don't grow without being wounded because the key to growth is change. And sometimes we don't want to change. Then we looked at verse 7, which says, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, even the bitter things are sweet. What a, what a great principle that is toward uh, our attitude toward the Word of God. In fact, last week we looked at two really key, important attitude toward the preaching of the Word of God, if you remember. First of all, I talked about the pastor and his attitude as preaching to his people. Then we talked about the people's attitude in receiving the preaching. And, uh, you know, many, many times around here, and we don't make any apology for it, we believe that God's program for this day and age and God's structure is the New Testament local church. I understand that the true church is the spiritual body of Christ. I get that. But the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is in the book of Hebrews. And all through the book of Acts, you find uh, Paul uh, establishing God's structure of the New Testament local church. And it's a great institution, and it's to give the world uh, God's truth. That was the original plan. And a New Testament church today, as all down through church history, is filled with men and women who have been born into the family of God by a spiritual new birth, and then fulfilling God's plan for their life as they put out the Word of God. And the pastor's job, as we saw last week, is to look well to his flock and make sure uh, that they, they have all that they need. You know, as I read through the Bible uh, a few times, you know, I'm always looking for things that, that maybe I missed before and little things that are subtle things that the deeper you get into it uh, and the more you see it, then more God gives you things that maybe you missed the first several times through. And I was reading it one time and I thought to myself, do you ever notice how uh, when Jesus fed the multitudes and he did that in Matthew chapter uh, 14 and then he did it again in Matthew chapter 15. When he did that, every time he fed the multitude, there was not only enough food for them to eat at that moment, but they also had leftover food that they could take with them when they went. And I, I thought to myself, you know, in our life, God always will not only give you what you need at that moment, but he's always going to give you more than you need. Amen. And it's one of the great characteristics of God. You know, it's true in the blessings of God. You know, I mean, we could just start with the fact that we all deserve to be in hell this morning and we're half ahead of the world. And you know as well as I do that God just doesn't stop with one blessing. Uh, he, he continues to bless us, and many times the, there's blessings in the blessings of the blessings that he gives you that they just keep unfolding themselves. And you know, that's true with the Word of God when you read it and you study it. God just keeps opening up that book to you, and he keeps feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. You know, that's where so many of you got to where you're at today with the Word of God. You, you come to the place that God has not only gave you the blessings of life because you've done what's right with the Word of God, but he's done because you have been in the book. He continues to teach you the Word of God and give you the blessing. And, you know, when you preach, and I know a lot of you guys do that. You go down to the mission and you go around preach up in Lincoln and all the places that we, we go and we uh, teach the Word of God. And, and I thought in my own mind, in my own heart, and I've thought this for a long time, that, you know, when you preach, you always want to leave some full baskets for later for people. You want to send some stuff home with you. You know, <laughs> two things we do well around here. One is to teach the Bible. The other one is eat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, tomorrow, I guarantee you, 
I got 230 or 40 pounds of ribs, and we've got close to 200 people coming. But, you know, we have hot dogs for the kids or whoever like it, and a lot of people don't like ribs. And a lot of people, you know, uh, personally myself, I like hot dogs and ribs. But, but here's what will happen. We, we all happens every year. We always have a, a big old uh, thing of ribs left. And so what we do is we get the ladies together, we put them on plates, stack them up, you know, 10, 15 ribs, put them in tin foil, and you take them when you go to, to take them home with you. And I've always thought to myself, you know, where I know my own personal life, nobody likes to eat better than I do. And I'm telling you, you know, there's nothing better than getting your food when you're there and then knowing out in the car you got a little plate that you're going to take home with you. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's biblical or not, but it sure is, it sure tastes good anyhow. And I've always thought when I preach, I, I always try to follow the same thing. I want you to take some stuff home with you. You know, the, the mark, and I'm not saying I'm a good preacher, but the mark of a good preacher is the depth that they have that is able to not only give you what you need for the moment, but you'll be able to take stuff home with you that you can use throughout the rest of the week. You know, I hear, I've heard all my life, you know, you know, Dr. Ruckman, we sell his books in the bookstore, and, you know, he's a personal friend of mine, uh, went home to be with the Lord a number of years ago. And, you know, I hear all the time, and people say, you know, uh, that he spends uh, too much time fighting everybody in his books, and they wish he would just stick to what he, he's doing here. You know, that's really not accurate. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Because when you understand what he's doing, he's simply laying out what these guys who are against our Bible believe and who they are. Now, to me, that's invaluable. Uh, when I want to get into my Bible, I, I need that. I, I do. In my life, these are the guys that I need to understand their position so I can better have my position. I mean, I want to know about Dr. A.T. Robinson. Maybe somebody else doesn't. I want to know about West Cotton Horde. I want to know about Tregellis. I want to know about Griesbach. I want to know about, you know, the pulpit. Uh, committee. I want to know about the other commentary. I want to know about Dr. Neal and Dr. Custer down at Bob Jones University. I want to understand where Dumelo is coming from when he makes his commentaries on the Old Testament, or the Lockman and the Lockman Foundation, or Adam Clark, or Jameson and Fawcett and Brown. You see, I get it. Some folks don't want it that deep. I understand that, and that's okay. But for me, hey, it's like when I eat. I want it all. I mean, we go out to eat at Jamie's or someplace, you know, and you all bring such great food. I get a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm not a racist. <laughs> I eat it all, man. You know, there's a little book that I suggest that everybody get. It's out of print for years. It's a little paperback. You probably buy it, uh, you, you, you probably buy it for 15, 25, 50 cents. I, I, you know, I think people are listening to our, our YouTube, and every time I announce a book, and say it's 25%, you all look for it, it suddenly jumps to four or $500. I think they're listening. <laughs> but it's a little book called Who's Who in Church History. It is one of the greatest little books I've ever found in my life. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it gives a complete bio, very small, of everybody in there. And if you want to know who is with you and who's against you, I mean, if you're ever going to do anything with the Bible, you're going to either bump into these guys or the people who are following these guys. And, you know, and I try to do the same thing. I'm not as good as Dr. Ruckman does by any stretch of the imagination. But I try to give you everything that you need and then add a few things to it. One time Jesus, and that's, I, this is another little thing I found. One time Jesus, uh, he was getting ready to go uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's really tired and going through a lot of things. And it's, it talked about the fact that he, he, went, uh, he went to a place, and then the Bible says that he went a little farther. And I've always thought, boy, that's a great advice for me. Go to you can't go anymore, and then go a little farther. It's a thing where, and in preaching, give them what they need, and then let them fill up some baskets. Put them on a plate, wrap tinfoil on it, and let them take it home with you. And as we saw last week, you know, life is a learning curve. And it's a learning curve based on change. You know, we talk to make the statement, well, life's a learning curve, and that doesn't really mean much to you realize the learning curve is about us changing about ourselves what we need to change. That's the learning curve. And a lot of times, like we talked about last week, uh, learning to change uh, is a change about ourselves. And it, when, you, when you get to that point with the Word of God, then you enjoy the bitter things, the wounding, 
because you realize that it's going to work for your profit and you're going to come out of it better than you went in. Like Job. Job came out of what his ordeal a lot better than he went in. And we talked about the wounds of a faithful friend that will lead us uh, even to love the, the, the tough things in the Bible. As the Bible says, the bitter things, they become sweet to us. So you're going to see that as we move through chapter 27, it kind of all goes together. So I like giving a little recap before we move in. And today, uh, we're going to move a little farther into chapter 27. And I think as we continue, uh, you're going to begin to see a picture uh, take shape here of how important it is to continue that spiritual growth of change. And it's something for all of us. We, nobody, I don't care who he is or who she is, nobody gets to the point where you don't have to change anymore. And, uh, you know, in the, if you get to that point, then you need to change that. I mean, I'm just telling you. Now, let's look at Proverbs chapter 27 here, and we're going to look at, believe it or not, three verses, 8, 9, and 10. It says in verse 8, as a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not, neither go into thy brother's house in the day of calamity. For better is a neighbor that is near than a brother far off. Drake, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on our preaching this morning, my friend? Dear Lord, thank you so much for this great church that we have, Lord. Thank you so much for the, the fellowship and just the body of believers we have here. And thank you so much for the word of God, Lord. And the pastor that's willing to preach and teach it and stand on it, Lord, and teach us to do the same. And right now, I pray you would just give him the word to say. Please bless his message and uh, just convict all our hearts, Lord, to change the things that we got to change and just to live more and more for you every single day, Lord. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, let's begin with verse 8. And there's some powerful things here that we want to look at. So we're going to walk through this thing here a verse at a time, and we'll, we'll talk about it. It says, As a bird wandereth from her nest so is a man that wandereth from his place. Now, in a practical way, uh, the verse is a great verse for us, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first of all, I want to talk about the doctrinal impact of this verse, how it relates to what God is doing with the nation of Israel. Uh, and we know now, by the time, that doctrinally the book of Proverbs is about the man Israel who, in a corporate sense, Exodus chapter 4, is God's son. And we know that the book of Proverbs talks about a wise man and a foolish man. And we get over to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. We actually see 10 virgins, 5 were wise and 5 were foolish. We know the how to make the connection. When you get into the book of 1 John, yeah, you guessed it. It's about two men. One's wise and one foolish. We know how to make the connection. So we see and understand from a doctrinal standpoint or prophetically how this thing is dealing with that he's dealing and talking about the nation of Israel. And God, as we all know, had a place or has a place for them, and they have wandered far from that place. We know now that the nation of Israel is um, scattered all over the earth, even though God now began to, around 1800, began to bring them back as fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and all those other places. But we know that in 606 B.C., they got scattered, and God began what we know as the times of the Gentiles. And we know that they had wandered from the place that God had for them. And the place that God had for them was the land that God had promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. If you want to simplify the Old Testament, and I know there's a lot of characters, a lot of events, and a lot of things that happened. If in a generalized sense, if you want to just, you want to just understand the Old Testament in a very simple, basic way, it it. It's a dealing with the fact that God, in the early part of the book of Genesis, he begins the formulation of the nation of Israel. By the end of Genesis, they go down into Egypt, and now he, you begin to see the, 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 the beginning of the nation of Israel. A little bit later on, in Exodus chapter 12, he brings them out. You see the calling out of Israel. By the time you get to 1 and 2 Samuel, you see the establishment of Israel. By the time you get to 1 and 2 Kings, you start to see the demise of the nation of Israel. And then by the time you get... The second Chronicles chapter 36, you see the captivity of Israel. But the whole Old Testament is nothing more than God getting them, calling them out through Abraham, promising them a place, and then embodying them to get to that place. And then, of course, uh, that place was the land that God promised to Abraham, Jerusalem. That was the place. 
that they have wandered from here. Now, I got to say this, and, you know, just bear with me here. Uh, This place in Proverbs 27 is one of the most misunderstood, badly taught, ridiculous teachings in anywhere in all the history of the Bible, pastors, teachers. And, you know, it's, I always call this, and don't take this in the wrong way, but take it however you want to. I always call this the pastor's stupidity test right here, understanding uh, this concept. You know, and I've gotten many a laugh out of this one. If you've got a moment, I want, I want you to see this. If you, I need, you need to get this in your Bible if you don't have it. Turn over to John chapter 14. Now, John chapter 14 will be the verse that is used almost at every funeral that you'll go to. When somebody dies, pastor will get up and he'll read uh, John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. And, you know, I've been to a thousand funerals that I've heard that. Uh, now that, you know, many of you, you come back and you go to a funeral and they say, yeah, the guy used John chapter 14. And the standard teaching is this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for, uh, for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, <laughs> years ago, when I was in Ohio, I won, I was working at the Hoover Company, and I won a, a guy to the Lord. He was a black guy. His name was John Tony. And I won him to Christ. And, uh, you know, I hadn't seen John for, oh, 20, almost 30 years. And when Mel Sabaka died, we went back to Ohio to go to his funeral. And lo and behold, old John Tony showed up at the funeral. And he's still preaching the word of God, still ministering the word of God. And we had, we had a great time together. But old John, he, 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 uh, he had a unique way with the Bible. Back then, the NIV was becoming very popular. And when John would deal with his own folks, you know, in his family or in the church that he pastored there, they all wanted to get the NIV, and he always wanted to stick with the King James Bible. And they asked John, why do you stick with that King James Bible? Now, I would have never thought of this, but this is John's mind. He took him over to John chapter 14, and he said to his church, black church, he said, John chapter 14 in the NIV, it says, if you believe in my father's house, there are many rooms. John said, I'm not taking any Bible that's going to take my mansion away from me as the King James Bible says and give me a room. <laughs> you know that whole church dumped the NIV and got a King James Bible? They didn't want a room either. <laughs> Standard teaching here, there's, there's six things in this passage, and I want you to see it because it goes right along with what we're talking about today. And, uh, and I want you to see this. And the standard teaching is that God's got a mansion for you up in heaven. Uh, you know, and I've heard, uh, you know, and when he says, and I go to prepare a place for you, we use it as funeral, like the guy's died and uh, he's got a mansion coming and God's saying, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, you know, if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again, take you. And then, you know, I'll live happily at Kumbaya. You know how that thing goes. I even heard preachers over the years, believe it or not, go back to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, take the dimensions of the New Jerusalem and then figure out based on how many Christians they thought were living down through history, how big these mansions were. You know, 100 feet by 200 feet for everybody. Oh yeah, and the the people in the church would go, amen. They'd think it was great. And, and, you know, and the standard teaching is he's coming in and we and receive you unto himself and that where he is you may be also. And then he would say, I'm sorry that Joe Smith's dead, but uh, he's got a mansion. You don't have yours yet. Now every head bowed and every eye closed because I got lunch here in 20 minutes. And that's how it worked in a funeral. It, it always bugged me or I always thought it was funny that it never seemed to bother anybody that John chapter 14, during that time period, there is no church. The church is not even in effect yet. The Holy Spirit of God hadn't come. That comes in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And there certainly isn't any Christians. They're not first called Christians. Acts chapter 11 in the church of Antioch. And I looked at this and there's six things here. And none of this has anything to do with you and me in the church age. It all has to do with the Jew and the nation of Israel and the place that God has given them. Now he says here, let not your heart be troubled. First thing I do is ask myself, who's the your? 
It's, it's the apostles that are here. And we like to think it's the whole body of Christ in the church. They're not even here yet. And then he says, my father's house. Now, if you go through the Bible, you'll find that the father's house is the whole house of Israel. Then he says, in my father's house, there were many mansions. If I go to prepare, and I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, the book of Ephesians clearly tells me that when the day I got saved and the day you got saved, you became one with Christ. He's in you, you're in him. And it's, you know, what's happened in the Laodicean church? And you hear me talking about this all the time. You heard the song service this morning. We still stay with the old hymns. You know why? Because we still stay with the old book. And those hymns that we sang this morning were written in the greatest period of time in church history when they, when they believed the Word of God was the Word of God. But what's happened today is once you dump the Bible, you lose your doctrine, you lose your teaching, and you lose your music, and pretty soon you just got one big gray mesh mush thing that everybody calls Christianity, and nobody knows what anybody believes anymore. So you get all of these things floating around out here like John chapter 14. I've heard a preacher preach one time out of John chapter 10, and he wanted to prove the first of you could not lose your salvation. So he goes to John chapter 10, and he says, I want you to know you can't lose your salvation, which you can't, by the way. And he says, here's the proof you can't. Bible says that Jesus was in the hand of God, and I'm in the hand of Jesus, and Jesus is in the hand of God. How are you going to lose your salvation when you're in the hand of God? And everybody went, amen. Do you know how stupid that is when it comes to the Bible? You want some doctrine this morning? You want to fill your basket up? You're not in his hand this morning. That's not where your eternal security is. The book of Ephesians says you're part of his body. You are his hand. You're not in his hand. You're part of the body. You can't lose your salvation because if you go to hell, he's got to go with you. Because you're in him and he's in you. I, and I, I, I tread lightly when I say some of these things because I, maybe I'll get away with it here, but I, if I was preaching someplace else, I, I'd be very careful with this because God's people are the most goofiest people on the planet. There isn't a, when I go to, I used to go to eat, preach someplace and somebody had me over and there on the refrigerator or in the wall framed up was that little, that little thing of the footprints in the sand, you know, and it, it's very moving. If I didn't know my Bible, I'd weep. You know how it goes. The picture is two, two pair of footprints in the sand walking side by side on the beach. And the, and the story goes, I had a dream last night. And I looked down and I saw two sets of footprints in the sand. And I knew that that was my relationship with Jesus. Then I walked a little farther. Now there was only one set of footprints. And I thought to myself, why did Jesus leave me? (laughs) We walked together and now we're walking, I'm walking by myself. So I turned to the Lord and I said, Lord, we were walking together. And then I saw just one set of footprints. Why did you leave me? Where did you go? Jesus looked down and smiled. (laughs) Son, I never left you. Yes, there was two sets of footprints we walked together, and then you only saw one set of footprints, and that's when I was carrying you. <laughs> that's, that's moving. But I got you, I, you know, some great stuff that you hear isn't very good Bible. Amen. You know why there'll never be two, there'll always be one set of footprints in the sand? Because you're in him and he's in you. Amen. He ain't carrying you anywhere. You're in his body. The day you got saved, you become one with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's living inside you, and he's in you. And then in the thing that he's he going to place that I'm going to go away from you, and then I come back, and I'll be with you. Hey, that Bible says that I'm already seated in heavenly places. My Bible says I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. My Bible says that my citizenship is now up in heaven. I mean, it isn't that where I am, you may be also. Wherever you are, Lord, you and I are together. He's in me. We're one. I can't never be with him because I am him. I'm part of his body. 
And of course, you begin to see how that when you read something like this, if you don't know your Bible, know how to rightly divide your Bible and ask yourself, who's he writing this to? Now, I know all the Bible is written for you. I get it. But you know as well as I do, not all the Bible is written directly to you. And the key to understanding the Bible is looking at a passage and understanding where it goes and who he's saying it to. Instead of taking it and trying to make it into your world that, yeah, my father's house has many mansions and he's gone away right now and, and he's going to come back and then he's going to come back for me and we're going to be together every morning. No, 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 no. He's inside you right now if you're saved. He is never going to leave you. And the fact that he went back to heaven, you know what? He gave you his body, the body of Christ. And not only that, he gave you his mind, the word of God. He's here in you and you'll never be separated from him. So there's something else here. Now let's look at the word place. Now this place here is not heaven. The guy who figured up the rooms uh, couldn't read. Because in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when it talked about the new Jerusalem, it talked about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It isn't heaven. When you really get into your Bible, you're going to realize why you don't need a mansion. And if you have one when you get up there, you'll sell it or lease it out because you ain't going to need it. Now, this place is not heaven because it's not to me in any way, shape, or form. You know what we're dealing here when he says in John 14, the place? We're dealing with Proverbs chapter 27, verse 8. God giving Israel a place, Jerusalem, and then them wandering from that place. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 says, but now they, the nation of Israel, desire a better country. That is a heavenly where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared, there it is, for them a city. Now that's Israel and God preparing a land for them during the church age while he's up there separated from them. That when he comes back at the second coming of Christ, he gathers them back together and in the millennium they're never separated again and he comes for them. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, sometime you got on a rainy afternoon with nothing to do, turn over to Jeremiah chapter 33 sometime. The whole chapter is dealing with the second coming of Christ and Israel's uh, being reinstated in the millennium, which is laid out in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. And when you look at Jeremiah chapter 32, lo and behold, in verse 10, he says, God has a place for them. In verse 12, he says he's going to do something with them in this place. And verse 13 says that place is at Jerusalem. So this place is not heaven for the Christian in John chapter 14. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. Remember, he's already came to the nation of Israel in Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 12 and 13, they make their official rejection of him. And now he's telling the apostles who represent the nation of Israel, obviously, that not let not their heart be troubled, that he's coming back and he's going to prepare a place for them that they're wandering from and he's going to establish them in that. Hey, we saw it. How many times have we laid out through the history of the nation of Israel? We saw in 1900 where God began to do this very thing. He's been up there in church history. You know what he's doing during church history? He's preparing a place, that place that he gave Abraham as a promise, the place that he's going to reinstate them in the millennium. For the last 2,000 years, he's been preparing the land here for them. And what happened in the 1900, around 1888? You had the Zionist movement. And the Zionist movement was the God beginning that movement to bring that Jew, getting him ready to come back to the land. And then what you have? You had World War I. What World War I do? World War I got the whole land over there ready for the Jew. And at the end of World War I, England, where you got your Bible from, has Jerusalem. And in World War II, we got the Jew ready for the land. And in 1948, they became a nation. And Matthew chapter 24 says, when that fig tree buds put forth its leaves and you see the fruit, it's coming. God has got that place ready. Hey, can't, don't you read the 6 o'clock news? Don't you see the 10 o'clock news? What's going on in the Middle East? You know what's happening over there? God's got that place prepared for them. A place for them. In this place. And that place is at Jerusalem. And it's a literal place on earth. Because God has given them a literal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. 
And John chapter 14, verse 3 says, while the church age is going on, he's preparing that place, and then he will come back, and they will be with him in the millennium in this place that he's prepared. And Proverbs chapter 27, verse 8 says that right now, Israel has wandered from that place. She's not where God intended her to be. Oh, man, nothing like a King James Bible to clear up a seminary education. And I'm telling you. Now, I just say this in case you're not hitting on all eight cylinders this morning. Uh, this, uh, uh, I just gave you two or three baskets you could take home with you. I mean, for the next 20, 30 years, go to work and find out, find out, find out why you and I don't need a mansion. Find out what Isaiah 9, 9 verse 6 and 7 really figures into you and me and why you don't need a na- mansion. Find out what God is going to do in the millennium with the Jew and you and why you don't need a mansion in that. Find out God's plan after the millennium for the Jew, the Gentile, and you and me, the body of Christ, and you realize why you don't need a mansion. And rather, that's a full basket. Take your while to chew on that food. Now, from a practical standpoint, this verse is a great piece of advice for all of us. We see doctrinally how it fits with the nation of Israel, and it's not a very good funeral message. But from a practical standpoint, this verse is a great piece of advice from all of us. And you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that God has a purpose uh, in life for you and for me. God saved you for a reason. God didn't save you so you could just live under yourself. God has given us a purpose in life, and with that purpose, there's a true calling. And the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, that we're to make that calling sure. Now, the word wander is a good word, if you want to do a word study on it. The word wander would imply that somebody has no fixed structure in life, no fixed destination in life. No direction in life, no, no purpose in life. And you're going to find, again, going back to the Bible, that every man in the Bible, whoever did what God wanted him to do, behind what he did, there was a purpose in what he was doing. Back in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, you find the story of Noah. Noah built a boat. Noah had a purpose in why he built the boat. That, that purpose is laid out for you in the New Testament. Abraham, uh, when God called him out, he wasn't called out to wander. He was called out to sojourn. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 says that Abraham, in his sojourning, in his journeys, he wasn't just out wandering around trying to find where he should go. Bible says he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was looking for that place that God told him about. Paul didn't wander aimlessly starting churches and say, oh, I see a slip up here. Where am I going to go this, this week? He had a direction and he had a purpose. And the letters that he writes to the churches, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, Colossians, it shows that purpose. Yet today, God's people will be in a constant state of wandering. The nation of Israel originally was called out of Exodus chapter 12 with a purpose and a direction to go. And you know what happened? Because they got out of the Bible, they started going after other gods, just like a lot of God's people today. You know what they wound up doing for the next 40 years instead of getting to the place that God wanted? They wandered. And some of God's people have been saved 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. And you know what? You're still wandering. You'll wander from church to church. Some of you wander from relationship to relationship. Some of you wander from marriage to marriage, place to place, job to job. People never have, God's people today never have any clear direction in life. They never have any real purpose in life for God. And they'll never just clear off a spot and build anything on their life. When I deal with people and I have people all my ministry come in and they've got issues in their life and they want to get the issues fixed and I, and I believe them and many of them have. A lot of you were like that when you came in. But you know what you got to do? You got to quit wandering, man. You got to find a place that's going to give you what you need and then you take and you clear off the foundation sometimes all the way down to your salvation. You've got to get the junk out of it. You've got to get some friends out of it. You've got to get all the garbage out of it. 
And you got to clear that thing down to the base foundation where you got saved. And then when you clear up that spot, now you got to begin to build something. But I'll tell you, you never do that till you quit wandering. And the Bible, the foundation for everything that we believe for all truth will be, as we know, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven to Israel in a literal sense. The kingdom of God to you and me in the church age is a spiritual sense. One's physical to Israel, the other's spiritual to you and me. And God had a place, has a place for each of those. Israel was the land, Jerusalem, the place that he said in Hebrews chapter 11 that he prepared. And John chapter 14 says that he's prepared and he's going to put them in. Absolutely nothing to do with you and me. For us, the place will be God's church, his structure, Acts chapter 11. And, you know, uh, the Christian will be, just like the nation of Israel, will be absolutely nothing without the city Jerusalem. They're nothing. The city of Jerusalem to them was everything that they needed that God was going to give them through that city. And by the same token, a child of God without a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church, you're absolutely nothing without it because that's the place that God, in the New Testament, God designed for us. We see it in pastors. They'll wander from church to church. And never accomplish anything. They'll never build anything. They look at churches like stair steps of success. Well, I start out with a church of 50. Then five, six, seven, eight years later, I got called to a church or I worked a deal, got a church of 200. Then about four or five years later, I got a church of 500. And they never, never just stand and build anything for God. You can't build anything with God in four years, five years. It takes a lifetime commitment. But it happens over and over again. Nobody ever gets built. Nothing ever happens. Proverbs chapter three, uh, 31, verse 16, that great chapter on the virtuous woman. We'll have a lot of good time in when we get to that point. It says in verse 16, talking about this virtuous woman, she considereth a field and buyeth it. You know, when it comes to the ministry, that's what you got to do. When I left Canton, Ohio, 1975, into 75, 76, and moved to Kansas City, I bought the field. This was my field. This is where God called me. And I stayed with that field. I, I realized that, that it, it takes a labor. And she, he says, and with the fruit of thy hands createth a vineyard. And it's a, something that you have to stay with. You have to realize that this is the purpose. This is the direction. This is what God wants you to do. And in each of your lives, God has a purpose and a direction for you. And when you find out what it is, you stay with it. And as the bird wandereth from his nest, so the child of God wanders from the place that God has for his purpose in life, just like the nation of Israel did. Look at verse 9 back in Proverbs. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So thus the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Now here's a great principle for all of us. Why uh, we should never wander from the place that God puts us in as a New Testament Christian and stay in place. For all of us, the strong, solid, positive relationships we need to have with other Christians. Ointment and perfume in the Bible will always represent the sweet smell of our relationship with Christ. You go back to the Song of Solomon in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. He likens, in the book of Song of Solomon is basically God, Christ looking at the church and then describing what he sees in you and me and how we are the love of his life. And then it shows what our relationship should be when we look back at him. And in both cases, it's like a garden. It's like spices. It's like things that smell wonderful and beautiful. It's like walking through a garden. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I've been off the coast of the Philippine Islands years and years ago at night on a ship, and you were maybe two or three miles out, but yet you could actually smell the fragrance of all the flowers drifting across the water. 
And in the Bible, our relationship with Christ is like that garden. In fact, I'll tell you if you want to know. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you have the story of the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was a perfect place. There was no sin in it back then. Everything was perfect. You didn't have to wear any clothes. Everybody ran around naked. Adam and Eve were the only ones, but they ran around naked. And you didn't have to have any clothes. And uh, it was a beautiful garden. You could pick roses all day long and never prick your finger on a thorn bush. There were no snakes. There was no garter snakes. There was no spiders. There was no mosquitoes. It was absolutely perfect. It wasn't the fact that, oh, I'm naked and it's 9 o'clock and there's a chill in the air. It wasn't like, uh, you know, God had a hand on the thermometer, man. It was perfect controlled weather. I mean, I don't know what you're laughing at. You all want that. You say, how do you know that? Because you were born that way. Did anybody come out with a three-piece suit on? And man's always tried to go back to that. Why? The most beautiful paradises on this planet are over in the South Seas. And you know what those islands are called? They're called the Solomon Islands. You know why? Because the greatest time on this earth that was like that period of time was when Solomon was on the throne. And man's always looked for that paradise. I mean, they wrote about it. Plato wrote about it. Uh, Aristotle wrote about it. All those great philosophers. A sophicus wrote about it. Got to watch him. He's kind of hard to swallow sometimes. <laughs> but, but they all were looking for this perfect utopia. Well, you know what? Laugh if you want. You can run around naked. And nobody says, <laughs> you're naked. Nobody cares. That's the way it was. And it, the smell was beautiful. Oh, it was wonderful. And, you know, and, they, and the Bible says that God came down and fellowshiped with them. It was an incredible time. And somebody says, boy, wouldn't it be great to have that today? Hey, you do. Because that Garden of Eden back there and that relationship with Christ is what your garden with God ought to be today. The relationship between you and Christ ought to be one of innocence. Now, you made laughing about my talking about naked. I stuck with that for a few moments because I want to make the point now, and here it comes. When it comes to your relationship with Christ today in the garden, everything ought to be naked and open under the eyes of him. See how I set you up on that? It's okay. Transparent. And your walk in your relationship with God should be just like the Garden of Eden, the sweet smell. In fact, the Bible says over there in Corinthians that when you talk about Christ, his death on the cross, to save people or lost people, the Bible says it's a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. That's why when the Old Testament, when he burnt that sacrifice, there was something about that flesh fat burning in that fire that that aroma appeased God as far as dealing with any man's sin. And that ointment and perfume will always represent our relationship with God. And right now, if you're not living in the Garden of Eden and your relationship with him isn't that sweet smell, uh, that, that, that everything in that little world with him is absolutely fine, it's either the Garden of Eden or you're living in the city dump. It's one or the other. Psalms chapter 45, verse 8 says, All thy garments smell of mirth and alloys and cassis of the ivory palaces were made thee glad. The smell that you have in your relationship with Christ, oh, here it comes. The smell that you have in your garden with him isn't just for you. It gets into your garments. The people around you smell it. You're either going to smell like the garments of God or the pack of cigarettes you just had. You ever notice how you can always tell a smoker? Gets into your clothes. I got people across the street that smoke marijuana, wacky tobacco, and they get into it. And I come out of my house some nights and there's a cloud over their house. It's not only in their clothes, but it's in the neighborhood. What I'm saying is this, when your personal relationship is like the Garden of Eden and you have that sweet savor of the perfume and the smell of the beautiful things between God, it doesn't just stay with you. It gets into your clothes and everybody smells it. Oh, now where are we going? Oh, here we go. Here's the verse. This is what real Christian fellowship and friendship is. When two Christians will have a bond together, 
to help each other. It'll be spiritually a blessing to God because the smell of your relationship in your garments and the smell of a relationship in nobody else's garments together, the sweet smell of our fellowship toward the Word of God and God and everything that He's doing in our lives. The two great qualities, as far as I'm concerned, that make this church what it is had nothing to do with me. The two great qualities that make this church what it is is one, the Word of God, and two, the bond that we have with each other. They're unshakable. I'll tell you, Bob and I pitch for the girls, you know, so we can keep the game going. I'm not sure how much we're helping, but uh, we, but, uh, but uh, I'm going to tell you, and I'm I'm sure I can speak for Bob on this because I know Bob, but uh, I love it. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. And I used to play with the guys for years and years and years, but you know what? Guys are all about guys and winning. I watch, you know what I love about pitching for you girls? I don't care who you're playing. You're rooting for the other person to hit the ball. And when somebody else, they had a gal last night, a couple of them hit the ball for the first time. Both teams were cheering. It wasn't like, oh, she hit the ball. I wish she'd have broke her leg. It wasn't any of that. That's what the guys do. You know what? I've done a lot of guys' games, and I've seen fights break out, and they go crazy. Uh, I've never seen that happen with the girls. Maybe you do it in the parking lot when I'm not looking, but, I, but, but I'm telling you, there's a bond there, and I love it. I feel it. You can see it. Don't you agree, Bob? It's right there. They, I mean, I just enjoy it. I enjoy it pitching to you, and you never get mad. If we don't do a very good job sometimes, you know, you don't get upset. You don't get mad. You're coming out, and I, I, I walk more. First game of the season, you know, I walk more people last night than, than you know, than, than I ever usually do, you know, and I'm sore this morning and all that. And, you know, and the other team coming out there saying, you're doing a great job. I appreciate it. I love you so much. Thank you for, I mean, nobody cared. So I thought, you know what? Let's make this game industry. I'm going to walk everybody. <laughs> Almost did, as a matter of fact. But anyway, but I, I watched that bond. And I know the guys have it, too. I mean, they do. They'll take in new guys, and I'm not, I'm not slighting them at all. They really do. it. Our leadership with the guys up there is impeccable. They'll take the new kids in, and they'll help them. But they're just not like the girls. The girls get giddy when another girl hits the ball for the first time. Guys just say, good job, man. You know, that's it. Good job. You know, that's all you get from them, you know. And, and it's a thing where the girls, they're, they're going, oh, she hit the ball, you know. <laughs> and it didn't even matter that it only went three feet and somebody caught it and she's out. <laughs> it's just the fact that they hit the ball. The bond of the relationships we build with each other that will lift us up when we need it. That will encourage you and me. That strengthens us by our relationship of that sweet smell of each of you having a garden with God separately and then putting a beautiful bouquet together. You see, when a child of God wanders, he does that alone. And in time, he starts to wander with the wrong crowd. Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Counsel the ungodly, way of sinners, and then he's sitting in a seat with the scornful. <clears throat> when in your place, when you're in your place in a New Testament church, you build that bond, it will form an accountability relationship that you help each other. And it will never be broken. And you know, and that's the really the key to a strong solid New Testament church. It's that band of the brotherhood between us and the Word of God. And you know, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 14, when the devil wanted to destroy the nation of Israel, you know what he did? It tells you right in that chapter in verse 14, he broke the bonds between Judah and Israel. He broke the bond. Because nothing will hold a church together and get it through anything than the bond that we have with each other through the Word of God that He's given us. And that we're not worried about our own selves and how great we are. We're worried about lifting up the other person or being there for them, helping them. 
Look at verse 10, Proverbs 27. Thine own friend and thy father forsake not, neither go into thy brother's house uh, in the day of calamity, for better is a neighbor that is near than a brother afar off. Now, again, doctrinally here, this day of calamity we all know will be the tribulation period. And we know that in the tribulation from Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 24, many other places, uh, we know that families turn against each other. And so we understand how that fits doctrinally. But inspirationally, what a great truth. And there's a couple of things here. First of all, he says, thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not. I can't tell you the impact in a person's life of the longevity of a relationship that's built around the word of God. Solid friends going back through the years that you know where they're at, they know where you're at. And you, through that time, God builds you in a spiritual sense as a family. I always tell, you know, I've been preaching at camp and I will be preaching again this year. And I always start out at some point in the process of telling these kids how much they mean to me because of how much their mom and dad means to me. And I try to hitchhike off of our relationship that we've had for, what, 10, 15 years, many of you 20, 30 years. And I try to hitchhike off of that to letting them to know that just as I am your mom and dad's friend for all these years, I'm also your friend. And though I may say some things this week that may be, you know, hard or that you don't want to hear, it's because of the fact that I want to give you the truth. Because the importance of a longevity in a relationship, solid friends going back through the years, uh, not only with you, but with your families, that you know where each other is at. The importance of knowing who you can trust. The importance of a long-lasting relationship with God's people that God has blessed your life with and realizing how important that they are. And I think many a times we lose sight of that. Always being there for each other. Always being there to help each other. Always being there to protect each other. Always standing together uh, in, with others in a life when they're going through a tough time. Being there to help somebody, never to hurt somebody. You know, Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, and again in Philemon chapter 1, verse 2, when he calls them and he mentions them the names, he says, my fellow laborers. They were laboring together because of the relationship that they have. And then the second thing I want you to see in verse 10 is, he says, neither go to thy brother's house in the day of calamity. For better is a neighbor that is near than a brother far off. Now, inspirationally, we're not talking about physical distances here. I want you to firstly understand that. You know, in the world, they have a saying that says, blood is thicker than water. And that saying is dealing with the bloodline of a family uh, and and their closeness. And I understand that. And certainly uh, in an unsaved world, that is true. But in Christianity, is not true in that same sense. Uh, the term blood is thicker than water from a Bible standpoint would be that we're all washed in the blood of Christ. Amen. So therefore, the bond that we have will be closer than any physical bond you'll have with any human being on this planet. Now, if they're saved, obviously that's fine. But if they're not saved, you know what I'm talking about. And many times, and you know this to be true, I know that many times you're very family. And I know it's not supposed to be this way, and I, I, I feel bad about it, but it, it's just life on planet Earth. Many times you're very family. Your moms, your dads, your brothers, your sisters, they're not glad that you're dialed into the Bible the way you are. Sometimes I'm not even glad you're dialed into a Bible-believing church the way you are. And, you know, we know from Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, we don't go full verses in the first chapter of Genesis that the Bible says that God divided the light from the darkness. The Word of God divides. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35, he says, you got it wrong, guys. I've not come to put everything together. I've come to rip it up. He says father against son, mother against daughter. And that sounds like so foreign to, to what we all hear today. But I'm telling you, truth will divide you. Matthew chapter 10 verse 36 says, And a, and a, you know, a, man's, uh, a man's foe shall be of his own household. 
He says in Matthew 13, 57, that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Many times your own family, moms and dads, your brothers and sisters who are so busy wandering and have no purpose in life, they can't stand for anything. And the fact that you do, it's going to cause you some problems. And, uh, you know, and I know somebody says, well, family's number one. No, truth is number one. Anything in life you have without the truth, you don't have anything. Also, you'll see brothers and sisters in a family when and I've dealt with this all my ministry. One will do right and the other won't. And it's going to cause some issues. And, you know, I don't know how that surprises any of us because, I mean, look at Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. One wanted to do right and one didn't. You go over here in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50, there's a story of Joseph and his brethren. And Joseph was the favorite of his father. He got a coat of many colors. That many coat of many colors represents for you and for me all the blessings. The father saw in him and loved him and gave him. It's a picture of the blessings of God that God is giving you that maybe somebody else isn't getting because they're not doing what they need to do. And you know what? It caused some issues, didn't it? How about Esau and Jacob? We saw that Thursday night in the blessing and the birthright, Genesis chapter 27. Ishmael and and Isaac in Genesis chapter 16. Hey, you want the classic example? Mark chapter 6 verse 3 and John chapter 7 verse 5. Jesus had brothers and sisters from Mary and Joseph. And most of his own brothers and sisters didn't believe on him. Can you imagine being at the great white throne judgment and standing there and this Jesus, now the glorified Son of God, in an earthly sense, was your very brother? Wow, that's a rough one. And, and I know it's a terrible tragedy, and the Bible will put distance between you and them. And I, I know. I mean, it comes down that you have different values. And when you love truth and love the Word of God and somebody else doesn't, it's how can two walk together except they be agreed? And, hey, I've seen it happen. You actually will lose your physical family. I mean, you still have them, and you still respect them. And, you know, and you don't ever forsake them. Uh, They forsake you, but you never forsake them. But God gives you a new spiritual family to do what your real family can't or they won't do. And, and, And this is the real issue. You appreciate truth, and you have found your place. And they still want to wander. Now, I say this because without a doubt, families are the key to the ministry uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God told Abraham very clearly that all the nations and all the families of the earth were going to be blessed through him and his nation of Israel. And that's what God intended. And there's no question about it in the New Testament. The New Testament local church is the venue by which God is going to reach families, going to reach people. I get it. And many of you who never had a mom and dad who loved the Word of God, never taught you anything, you came in and you got saved, and now you found the love of your life. You're married or you're going to get married, and you obviously will have kids. And you have a great advantage now because you are the first one in the, maybe in the long history of your family tree to break that cycle and begin a family that's going to, from this point on, be everything that God wants them to be. And it's going to come back to the bonds that we have together. But sometimes, many times, I'm sorry to say, that doesn't happen. Because you who love the truth, who desire the truth, the truth will divide you from people in your own family sometimes. And when you do get together, and you know this is true, you get together for somebody's birthday or somebody's wedding or some grandkid's birthday, and it's all surface talk. You've got some great things that God has done in your life this week. You saw some great things into the Bible, but you can't share it with anybody there. So you talk about the royals, talk about the sports, talk about, boy, your kids are getting big. Boy, you're putting on some weight, aren't you? You, you talk normal stuff. I mean, it depends on how you want to get back at them. Lady says, well, you know, how do I look? I've lost, I, I lost 30 pounds. And you say, where at? You know? No, I'm just kidding but you know, there's nothing there. You get around here, let me show you what God gave me in the Bible this week. 
Let me tell you, boy, I'm going to get a blessing. I, I have a hard time getting to anywhere to do anything because all you want to keep coming over and tell me about what God has done in your life. And I'm all for that. We'll put everything else on hold because those are number one. <clears throat> we don't talk along about the Royals here, the sports, or who won this or who won that. We do, but at the end of the day, <clears throat> we're all about the one book that changed us. Because nothing else in this life would change you like that book changed you. And then add insult to injury or blessings to blessings. He gave us each other. And we, as a church, want to be that garden that wherever we go, when God looks at it and God takes a whiff of it, he smells the garden of fellowship and relationships that pleases him. So God will fill that void with a spiritual family and friends that will, like Christ, stick closer than a brother, who a brother that is born for adversity. And it says, <clears throat> a faithful friend <clears throat> who will encourage you with hearty counsel. Hearty meaning from the heart. Biblical-based counsel that comes from the heart that is hearty, that is true, that you need when you have to go through something in life. And then the last part of verse 10 says, For better is a neighbor that is near, and I said it's not a physical distance, near the book, near the God, or close to you, than a brother, family member, who is far off. He's wandering and has no purpose. No real relationship with God, so honestly there can be no real relationship with you other side the family. You know, you talk about sports, kid jobs, and all that thing, holidays and all the things, but nothing that's have to do with the Word of God. And in all of these principles, we see the great truth that when we do what's right and follow the book, and we give ourselves to change through the faithful wounding of the Word of God, which impacts our lives, God only not only gives you what you need on a daily food to sustain you, but through the people and friends and love the book who love you, he'll always, he'll always give you over and above. There'll be baskets left over, more than enough. And I've always looked at Matthew chapter 14, verse 17, says there was 12 baskets left over. And over there in Matthew chapter 15, verse 34, it says there were seven baskets left over. I always looked at that and thought to myself, well, there it is, 12 baskets. It was true in the Old Testament, 12 tribes, seven true in the New Testament, seven periods of church history. Taking things for granted instead of seeing all the things that God has given us. God's people will take the Bible for granted. And they'll lose their perspective. They'll take the church for granted. And they'll get mad over some stupid thing and lose the place that God has for them. But more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but certainly within these three, they'll take each other for granted. And that's what we can't do. You've got to realize that God puts you here. God brought you here. You're here for a purpose, to find your direction and purpose in life. And you know what? No man is an island. We need each other. Amen. We need to be in the right place at the right time with the right book, with the right people, with the right preaching to accomplish what God has for us. These very core three areas of our Christian life, and we lose sight of them and we start to wander. And it will be the wounding of a faithful friend and the hearty counsel based on the Word of God and the blood bond that we have that holds us together, gives us a purpose through the Word of God, through the structure of God, that we never just wander in life. I told the people yesterday in Bible Institute, we got a guy in our neighborhood He's probably 25, 28. Now, I live at, at Woodson Drive, which is right there. I think he lives all the way down west on 83rd Street, probably almost to uh, Raytown Road down there. And this guy is really spooky. You'll see him wandering up and down the streets. He just wanders. He walks. He walks more miles a day than I do. I guarantee you. I've seen him all the way down 350, all the way to the, the high V. I've seen him all the way up, and he comes up our, our cul-de-sac. And he just, I've been, hey, I've taken the dog out at 11 o'clock at night, and he's standing down at the corner just looking. <laughs> you drive by, and his eyes, they're the scariest eyes on the planet. 
if this guy isn't demon-possessed, he's missing the best chance he's had all week. <laughs> and he just looks, no face, expressionless, just looks at you. And he walks. And he stops. He walked up our cul-de-sac the other day, and my neighbor, who just moved into the house about three or four months ago, comes over to me, I was outside, and he says, uh, what was this with this guy? And I said, well, I don't know. He wanders all over the place. I said, I think he lives way down here. I said, I see him all time, night and day. And, and I, I, I said, he just wanders. I mean, he wanders everywhere. And I said, but I think he's harmless. And he said, harmless? He says, he knocked on my door last week at 3 o'clock in the morning. I came down and asked him what he wanted, and he said he was looking for a woman. I wish you'd have come to mine, and I'd have said, Barb, go answer the door. <laughs> now, I say that because this guy is weird. In fact, you've seen him, Troy? You've seen him, haven't you? Somebody else told me that they've seen him and lives in, in a big circle of my house. You've seen him? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's weird. He, I mean, he's just, and he just, you know, and he just walks. Never says a word. I saw a, 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 in my in front of my house, I saw a car stop the other day, and he was laughing, the kid. And I thought the guy was knew him. But then I saw when he, the car drove away, that wasn't the case. This guy was confronting him. And he was just, because he was going down the street, he was talking to himself all by himself. And I thought to myself, every time I see him, and, you know, I feel sorry for this guy. Nobody, obviously, is caretaking him because he's, he's, I mean, I don't know who would just let him walk around. He, he does it in the rain. He does it in the snow. And he does it all night long. And it's a thing where, you know, I just, I, every time I see him, I think to myself, I know a lot of God's people like that. You see, his body that he has will get him wandering wherever he wants to go. He's got the body to do it. Problem is, he has no mind to figure it out. And I know lots of God's people that are in the body of Christ, but you don't have the mind of Christ. So just like him, all your life, you'll wander. From neighborhood to neighborhood, from place to place, the things to things, and just like that guy. I mean, he, I, I wouldn't want to tangle with him at night. I mean, he's He's built pretty good for, you know, I don't know what he does. I mean, maybe he's been in prison and he pumped a lot of iron. I don't know. But he, 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 he I wouldn't want to tangle with him. And just the fact that he's scary. I mean, I'll fight you, but put a mask on so I don't have to look at those eyes. I mean, it's scary. And I think to myself, that's just like so many of God's people. He has the body, but he has no mind. Two things you got to have not to wander. As a child of God, you've got to be in the body and you've got to have, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. You can have one and not the other and you'll wander. You have them both. Your wandering days are over. But so many of God's people are just like this guy. No mind, but a strong body. And he walks. No purpose, no direction, no nothing in life. And I see God's people just like that. You're in the body. You're saved but you don't have God's mind for any purpose or direction in life. Proverbs chapter 27 talks about us wandering from the place that God has for us. And when God puts you in a place to accomplish that purpose, that's where you need to stay unless God moves you someplace else or comes down and changes the dynamics of it. But that's the key. That's the key for Israel. That's the key to us. And the bond that we have together in my own personal, humble estimation is what sets this church apart. Amen. It's the fact that you truly do love each other. Amen. That you're truly there for each other. And that Bob and I can pat, pitch the worst game in the history of softball and you still love us. <laughs> because you love each other. And more important than winning or losing and all of the things around us is the relationship we have together through the word of God Amen. for the purpose God has saved us for. Every head bowed, every eye closed.